Good afternoon. My name is John Wilson, and I'm Dean of the Graduate School here at Princeton. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this fourth in a series of six lectures titled Frontiers of Knowledge, under which the Public Lectures Committee of the University and the Graduate School have brought back some of the outstanding graduates of the school uh, to lecture in their fields of special expertise. Uh, we're delighted that uh, we have with us today uh, a very distinguished graduate of the Woodrow Wilson School. After the lecture, and there will be time for questions immediately after it, there will be a reception in the Frist Campus Center, which is better known to uh, many people uh, from years past as uh, Palmer Hall, the old physics building uh, since adapted to uh, a new use. Uh, there are signs uh, that will help you find a way down there, uh, and in that reception will be further opportunity to talk with our lecturer. At this point, let me ask Dean Michael Rothschild of the Woodrow Wilson School to introduce our guest. Thank you, John, and thank you all for coming. I can't imagine a better person to speak to us and to represent the Woodrow Wilson School. I'm, I'm often asked, what is the Woodrow Wilson School about? And I tend to give a mumbling long answer which somewhere in there has to produce careers of people who make the world a better place in a practical way. And I could really do much better by, say, just have a hand in producing more people like Peter Bell. Uh, Peter has a long and distinguished career, and I'm not going to read his CV, in part because I forgot my glasses, but uh, but he's worked in South America for the Ford Foundation, uh, worked in and out of the U.S. government. Uh, he was president of the Edna McConnell, Clark McConnell Foundation, and most recently has been president of CARE for the past five years. CARE is an absolutely huge organization. It's the largest private relief organization, has programs in more than 60 countries. And I think every day in his work, Peter has to deal with a problem that I suspect we all do when we think about disaster and poverty on a large scale. Uh, and it really raises two questions, at least. Uh, one is, these things aren't just rare events. Uh, I looked at the CARE website, and the disasters of the month are earthquakes in El Salvador and India. and. These are huge and terrible events involving hundreds of thousands of people, great loss of life, and so on. But 
those really are just the disasters of last month. There are many more. They constantly happen. And it's clearly very, very important to think systematically about them. And I know from having known Peter that he does. He worries all the time about what are the fundamental and recurring causes of these things and how can you deal with them systematically. And CARE does too. I noticed that CARE had had programs in India going back 45 years to deal with problems of this kind and El, Sal and El Salvador for slightly less time. Uh, CARE has an entrenched local network uh, to draw on in times of crisis and also to worry on an everyday basis about how you can make the world better. The other thing that's necessary when thinking about large-scale disaster is to somehow think about it at a human level. It's easy to just feel that there are so many people, so much numbers, that you can forget that there are people involved. And one of the things that no one can fail to know by meeting Peter for any length of time is that he has a great concern for individual people at a per very personal level. When I last visited Peter in Atlanta in, I think, September 99, CARE was dealing as much of the rest of the world was with problems in Bosnia, Kosovo, etc. CARE's, one of CARE's concern was the fact that Milosevic had captured three care workers and was holding them hostage. And Peter had made it a personal concern of his and of CARE's that these people be rescued. Now, in part, this was something that needed to be done because as president of CARE, you have to support your people. And that was important, but it was also clear from talking to Peter how much he cared and communicated that care to everyone in the organization about the individuals involved and the great joy he had when it was announced while I was there that one of the hostages was released. And the whole organization was excited about it. And it is this kind of concern for individuals and their own fates, as well as a systematic and very smart analytic understanding of how the world works that makes us so lucky to be about to hear Peter talk about affirming dignity and ending poverty, the search for a better world.
Thank you so much, Mike, for that kind introduction. Uh, I served for several years as chair of the advisory council to the Woodrow Wilson School and very much enjoyed uh, working with Mike Rothschild and appreciated the candor and the openness and richness of the exchanges that uh, we had back then and have had since. My son, Jonathan, and my daughter, Emily, are here with us today. Karen, uh, two weeks before uh, Emily was born, Karen and I chose her name. But in poor communities in Bolivia, parents do not name their children until they've reached the age of one because so many children die before their first birthday. When Jonathan turned 15, he was concerned about getting his driver's license and beginning preparations for the SATs. But in South Africa today, 15-year-olds face a 50-50 chance of dying from HIV-AIDS. Before, earlier this afternoon, I was over in Robertson Hall. I brought, bought this can of Coca-Cola. It cost 75 cents. 300 million Africans, half the population of that great continent, live on barely 65 cents a day. The most important challenge of this new century is to end poverty. For some, for some people, this proposition may seem far-fetched, but ending poverty is both morally necessary and actually feasible. All of us must play a role in making it happen. All human beings want and have a right to live in dignity, to determine our own destinies, and to be respected by other, by other people. Despite the universality of these rights, our capacities to fulfill them vary enormously. And no dividing line is more profound in influencing the quality of our lives than the gulf between poverty and, pros and prosperity. It is difficult to fathom what extreme poverty means. People in poor communities in developing countries struggle to make a living. They make do without access to adequate food, clean water, basic education, decent health care, or protection of the law. They are perched every day on the razor's edge of crises. They reside in the flimsiest housing on the most precarious sites, and not surprisingly, are always the hottest hit by natural disasters. They are the most exposed to infectious diseases, such as malaria, tuberculosis, and HIV-AIDS. Because of their complete lack of power, they may be exploited as domestic servants, day laborers, or sex workers. They are shunned and cast into the shadows of society 
and they are often punished for their own misfortune. I am deeply moved by the suffering and courage of people in poor communities. But what I find most searing are the lack of choice and opportunity and the stripping away of dignity. It is jarring to travel back and forth between two worlds, a world in which Americans are buying groceries on the internet and a second world in which a ch one child in three in a country like Angola is dying before the age of five. We must and we can bridge the gap between these two worlds and affirm the ties that bind all human beings to one another. We will not end poverty overnight, but we can make it happen in this century. In my lecture, I will first explain what I mean by ending poverty. I will then share some lessons that could help advance that effort. Next, I will lay out some ideas for transforming the vision of a world without poverty into practical strategies. And finally, I want to talk about your role in ending poverty. Here we are in the year 2001, riding the crest of a wave of extraordinary technological progress. And yet, despite all of this progress, the end of the Cold War, in the process of globalization, almost half the world's population lives on $2 a day or less. All too often, the progress of the world has eluded and even excluded the poor. The very idea of ending poverty is alien to most of us. One generation after another has been raised believing that the poor will always be with us. We know we can alleviate poverty. We know we can relieve suffering. But we have hardly even considered that ending poverty might be realistic. Poverty has meaning in a relative and in an absolute sense. There are certain minimal standards which must always be met for people to live in dignity. These include, for example, access not only to adequate nutrition, clean water, and basic education, but also to basic civil liberties. When I talk about ending poverty, I'm talking first and foremost about all people everywhere at least meeting such minimal or absolute standards. Once having met these standards, each nation must keep raising the bar of what is considered poverty and strive to surpass those standards. We must work toward the vision of a world where all people live in dignity and security, where everyone sleeps in safety and awakens with hope. Most Americans are compassionate toward poor people, but our initial response is often to treat symptoms. We may help the homeless by volunteering in a shelter or a soup kitchen. Although it is important to understand the plight of poor people and to relieve their suffering, we must do more. To end homelessness, we must focus on lasting solutions, like building community mental health systems and expanding the supply of low-cost housing. 
Otherwise, our good intentions may serve only as band-aids. CARE has learned this lesson, and we continue to learn. We began as a relief agency, responding with care packages to the threat of famine in Europe after the Second World War. And to this day, we meet people's needs in emergencies, but most of our work is now focused on lasting solutions to poverty. If we are to end poverty, we need to start by taking a more systemic approach, understanding poverty in all its complexity and, under, under, and attacking its underlying causes. The specific causes of poverty vary in the context of each nation, community, and family. But among the most widespread and pernicious causes of poverty are the following. First, poverty is frequently wrapped up in issues of discrimination and exclusion, whether on the basis of gender, race, religion, ethnicity, or caste. Second, poverty is often linked with conflict. In some 36 countries, families are being uprooted from their homes and forced to flee. Women and children are being killed, people go hungry, and diseases run unchecked. Third, poverty is tied to poor governance, to corruption and abuse of power. Governments can trample on the rights of the least powerful members of their society. Fourth, the HIV AIDS pandemic has become both a symptom of poverty and an important cause. More than 90% of the HIV AIDS cases in the world are in developing countries. And finally, poverty is linked with environmental degradation and population growth. Too many people on too little land can be a formula for disaster. The list of underlying causes of poverty is much longer. I cite these examples to convey the complexity of ending poverty. While the task is formidable, it is not impossible. The motivation, the yearning to contribute toward a better world is, is instinctive and deeply human. Most people desire to make a difference for the better, not just in their own lives, but also in the lives of their families, communities, and as far into the world as their horizon may stretch. Transforming this yearning into effective action can be profoundly satisfying. Suppressing it can lead to, lead to a disturbing emptiness. At its best, the privilege of a career in public service is the privilege of dedicating one's life to the search for a better world. My first inclination toward public service was a perverse reaction to the McCarthy hearings. People who had served their country honestly, courageously, and professionally were ruined. In Gloucester, Massachusetts, my hometown, my Sunday school teacher, the librarian, and other people I admired were blacklisted. And decent people, including the city leaders, sat by, incapacitated. I knew then that I wanted to be someone who acted in the face of injustice. While still in high school, I spent a summer on the AFS exchange student, as an exchange student living with a Japanese family. They had lost relatives 
in the atom bombing of Nagasaki. Taking me into their home was part of the Okajima's commitment to reconciliation with America. The motto of the AFS, taken from Sanskrit, made a deep impression on me. Walk together, talk together, O ye peoples of the earth, then and only then shall ye have peace. So too did the personal motto of Mrs. Okajima, painted on a scroll hanging in an alcove. It read, to make the world more wonderful. In college, a couple of years later, Professor Weiss, Paul Weiss, a professor of metaphysics, who had survived the Holocaust, gave us a command at the end of his final class. I have never forgotten it. Go forth, he instructed, and make the world less miserable. Hardly a day has gone by when I have not found inspiration in the words either of Mrs. Okajima, make the world more wonderful, or of Professor Weiss, make the world less miserable. Mrs. Okajima on my better days, Professor Weiss on my less good days. <laughs> Throughout my career in public service, I have learned many important and sometimes hard lessons. They have sharpened my commitment to making the world better and influenced my thinking about how it can be done. Good intentions must be married with disciplined thinking and effective action, and problems must be considered holistically. These were lessons instilled in me at the Woodrow Wilson School. And when I joined the Ford Foundation, third world development was conventionally viewed as technological, a technological and economic enterprise measured by per capita income. I was one of several Woodrow Wilson alumni who argued that development was more holistic, that it had to do not only with growth but with equity, not only with economics but politics, not only with technology but culture. Development and human rights are closely interrelated. Development is needed to advance human rights, but human rights must be at the center of development. In 1973, after the military coup of General Pinochet, my colleagues and I transformed the Ford Foundation in Chile from a de development organization into a human rights organization so that we could get eventually back to the work of development. The military junta rewarded our efforts by declaring me a suspicious person. Nevertheless, our principled position helped not only to save lives and careers, but also eventually to recreate space for critical inquiry and public debate. Five years ago, we, we revised CARE's mission statement to put the dignity of each person, which is at the core of human rights, explicitly at the center of our work. That change has triggered subtle but important changes within CARE, from our responding to people's needs to our upholding the right of each person to a life of dignity and opportunity. Bearing witness and giving voice to poor people through advocacy and reshaping institutions to meet poor people's needs through institutional reform are critical ways to find lasting solutions to poverty. Until the last few years, CARE viewed itself as apolitical 
but we now recognize our responsibility to act on what we see in poor communities. Influencing changes in policies and institutions is now part of our mission. We use advocacy to advance people's basic rights and to get at underlying causes of poverty. In Sudan, for example, during a horrible famine several years ago, CARE's work was saving the lives of tens of thousands of people. But we realized that cycles of famine would never end until there is a just settlement to Sudan's civil war. Since then, CARE has become a leading advocate for a just peace in Sudan. Ending poverty begins with helping people to help themselves, while building on their strengths, not focusing on their weaknesses. By definition, poor people have very few tangible assets, but when given the chance, they are strongly motivated to improve their lives. And an effective starting point can be organizing themselves for cooperative efforts. Through their own organizations, poor people can learn from one another, set community priorities, tackle projects themselves, and press authorities for support. At the Inter-American Foundation, we subscribe to that, mo that credo. But I came to the realization, painfully, that not everyone agreed with us. The Heritage Foundation issued a report on our work stating, it is well and good to involve poor people in development, but wrong to let them be in charge. Shortly thereafter, the presidentially appointed board asked me to step down. In the uproar that followed, however, the foundation reaffirmed its commitment to empowering poor people to control their own lives. I have worked with people who have who have led extraordinary changes in difficult settings. Such people may initially be discounted as crazy or rejected as dangerous. In developing countries with authoritarian regimes, these people can put their very lives at risk by upsetting the established order. In 1969, for example, when a young Brazilian professor of sociology was ousted from the University of Sao Paulo by the military regime, he decided to break with tradition and remain in Brazil. Rather than go into exile, he proposed starting a freestanding center for social research. And I recommended a startup grant to the Ford Foundation. Despite warnings from the US Embassy about the professor being a leftist and threats about my grant recommendation being bad for my career, Ford approved our going ahead. And despite harassment from the Brazilian secret police, the professor built the center into a premier research institution. He went on to play a leading role in the democratic resurgence of the country. And today, my old friend, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, is serving his second term as president of Brazil. When I look back over my career, I admit to being as idealistic and hopeful, indeed more resiliently so, as when I first came to the Woodrow Wilson School. Way back then, I acquired what 
Albert Hirschman has called a bias for hope. Poverty can be ended. The task will be formidable, but I know that we must do it and that we have the means to accomplish it. I have read some of the scenarios of doom, the pessimistic predictions, especially for Africa, and I appreciate the complexity in ending poverty. Our first test in rising to the challenge must be to reject the scenarios of doom as morally reprehensible and articulate a vision that will galvanize skeptics into action. There are three basic reasons why I believe poverty can be ended in this century. First, we already have examples of countries that have made remarkable progress over recent decades. Fifty years ago, who would have predicted the incredible progress of the East Asian countries? The 1997 financial crisis aside, these countries have made significant, speedy, and sustainable advances in both growing their economies and in combining growth with equity. The case of China is also quite remarkable. Over the past two decades, the economy has grown at a rate of 7.7% annually, doubling each decade. And if it maintains that rate for a third decade, the Chinese economy will have grown eightfold in a single generation. My second reason for believing that poverty can be ended is the tremendous advances in knowledge, technology, and wealth in the world. We have learned a great deal about how to generate economic growth and bottom-up development. We have acquired unprecedented capability to transmit information and to connect with remote parts of the world. Over the past 25 years, the Green Revolution has greatly increased production and lowered the cost of food. The proportion of children in poor countries immunized against six dreaded diseases has increased from 5 to 75 percent. The wealth that exists in today's world boggles the mind. The 225 richest individuals have wealth equal to the poorest 47% of the world's population. Americans spend $8 billion a year on cosmetics, $1 billion more than is needed to make basic education accessible to every child in the world. If there were the will to end poverty, we have the means. We have become reasonably adept at promoting economic growth and need to get much better at promoting social equity. Finally, who can discard the possibility of ending poverty after the astounding changes that we have seen just over the last decade? The end of the Cold War and the dismantling of apartheid in South Africa. In my own professional life, I have seen changes that once seemed a distant dream. Let me mention just one. In 1999, I led a mission to the city of Culiacan in Mexico to investigate the slaying of two successive directors of a local human rights organization. The experience was like something right out of the movie Traffic. What we found 
was that the two directors, shortly before being killed, had each found a link between members of the Federal Judicial Police and drug traffickers. After I reported our finding to the state governor, all of our meetings with federal officials were summarily canceled. And Mariclare Acosta, a Mexican collaborator in the mission, for the mission, was threatened and ostracized. What a thrill, therefore, to be invited in December to the inauguration of Vicente Fox, Mexico's first ever freely elected president, and discover that Mariclare Acosta has been named Mexico's first ambassador for human rights. When I think back about such changes, changes that once seemed nearly impossible, I have little doubt that we can end poverty. I know that Sub-Saharan Africa is the hardest case. Yet there, too, I see glimmers of hope in the transition to a democratically elected government in Nigeria, in the post-apartheid governments of South Africa, in the recovery from civil war of Mozambique, and the resurgence of Ghana, Mali, and Uganda. I also see hope in the grassroots organizations that have effectively are effectively combating poverty all across the continent. The resilience, energy, and talent of these people are a wonder to behold. Do not count them out. What will it take to end poverty in this century? Developing a strategy to end poverty is an immense undertaking. But I would identify five components that I think are essential to any such strategy. First, ending poverty will take dedication and action at every level, local, national, and global. In this interconnected world, poverty is affected by actions at all these levels. The fundamental responsibility for acting against poverty lies with national governments. International agencies and donor governments should play strong supporting roles, but national governments must step up to the challenge. They must place emphasis on growth and equity. They must provide a framework of law and order and respect for rights within which people can express their political voices, make choices, and pursue economic opportunities. Although governments must be accountable to their citizens, governments are not alone in responsibility for addressing poverty. On the contrary, the end of poverty will only be achieved by a combination of the state, civil society, and private sector working together. Within CARE, we realize that we must work with partners from all three sectors to build capacity for self-help. At the global level, we need to rethink the process of globalization. It must be made to reflect not only the cold tyranny of the markets, but also values like inclusiveness, choice, and equity. Globalization is a powerful force that can be leveraged to help reduce poverty. Right now, however, globalization helps rich countries more than it does poor countries. In fact, it sometimes helps rich countries at the expense of poor countries. 
concrete things can be done to help poor countries to benefit from globalization for example industrialized countries could extend free markets to their own economies and cut agricultural subsidies doing so would provide poor farmers from Af in africa and latin america with larger markets and allow them higher prices as well and this takes me to the, my second component of our strategy the international community must be committed to working in concert to end poverty. We have made progress on this front. Last fall, the heads of 188 governments assembled at the UN to commit themselves to a world without poverty. Members of the development community from the UN, from the Organization for, for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, the World Bank, and organizations like CARE have signed on to a goal of cutting in half the proportion of people living in extreme poverty that is on a, on a dollar or less a day by the year 2015. At CARE, we have made an explicit commitment to work toward that goal. The goal is ambitious, and we can only bite off and deliver on a small part of it. But if each member of the development community signed on to the goal, and gave it, gave it our comparative advantage, we would make real progress. The development community is more of a community now than it ever has been. We are converging in our understanding of the causes of poverty and the actions that must be taken to end poverty. The World Bank has set out a comprehensive framework that brings together much of what has been learned about development. It is remarkable that the bank, which for so long expounded a trickle-down theory of development, now talks about ending poverty and promoting human development. Indeed, the bank's current mission statement sounds a lot like CARES. We need to help keep the World Bank's feet to the fire, but we should also support the directions in which the bank is moving. All development agencies committed to ending poverty need to pull together toward our common purpose. For me, the third component of our strategy for ending poverty must be the leadership and support of the United States. No other nation is as well positioned to provide diplomatic support for resolving conflicts, to correct the failings of globalization, or to advance non-market interventions in support of international development. I yearn for the day when a president of the United States will see the major strategic challenge of the world as ending poverty and will put more and more resources behind that goal. President Clinton actually edged toward that vision, but very belatedly. In his farewell address, he talked about the global gap between the rich and poor requiring more than compassion. He stated it requires action. Global poverty is a powder cake, he said, that could be ignited by our indifference. And echoing the president, Sandy Berger, on his last day as national security advisor, called on the Bush administration to keep action against poverty front and center. Why is it that President Clinton waited so long? And why is it at least so far 
and talking about the U.S. role in the world, President Bush has talked not has talked only about the so-called harder issues of the military and economy. The fourth component of our framework must be promoting a set of strategic investments that should have high impact in poor communities, be responsive to local priorities, and reduce vulnerabilities and expand opportunities. Drawing on my care experience, I will cite three areas for high priority attention. They are basic education, safe water, and control of HIV AIDS. The link, the link between poverty and education works both ways. The less educated you are, the more likely you are to be poor. And the poorer you are, the less likely you are to be educated. In India, for example, the, in the richest 20% of households, the median grade completed by 15 to 19-year-olds is 10. In the poorest 40%, the median grade completed is less than one. Education is not only a basic human right, but also the best investment we can make in advancing development. And that's particularly true of girls. Each, each extra year of education is associated with an increase in family income, a reduction in women's fertility rate, and a decrease in infant, child, and maternal mortality. Education provides awareness, knowledge, and self-confidence, all very empowering. Access to safe water and sewerage is also a basic human right. It, too, is an area in which much of the world has made steady progress over recent decades. Yet, a billion people in poor communities still do not have access to clean water. And two and a half times that number still live in unsanitary and unhealthy environments. In those communities, three million children die each year of diarrhea-related diseases. Many women spend several hours each day fetching water from distant sources. The competition for water is a source of conflict between communities and even nations. The provision of clean water, when accompanied by adequate sanitation and hygiene, can reduce disease and save lives, especially those of young children. It can also free up valuable time for overburdened women and permit their devoting that time to other productive activities. It may, and it may even reduce tensions between neighboring communities. The AIDS pandemic is ravaging sub-Saharan Africa. Unless the pandemic is reversed, it alone will thwart for many decades any effort to end poverty in Africa. Of the 36 million people in the world with AIDS, 25 million live in sub-Saharan Africa. In Botswana, nearly 40% of the population are HIV positive. In South Africa, 20%. While a few countries, like Uganda and Senegal, have mobilized to combat AIDS, most of sub-Saharan Africa still has a long way to go. 
impeded by inadequate health resources, the stigma associated with AIDS, and, and unwillingness to confront sexual practices. Governments have held back for too long, and so too did the international community. The AIDS pandemic in Africa is a prime example of where free markets and globalization will not do the job. There is much that can be done to provide preventive education, to stop transmission, and to arrest progression of the disease. CARE has joined a coalition of international and African NGOs focusing on children affected by AIDS. And I applaud the Gates Foundation for putting hundreds of millions of dollars into the development of vaccines for diseases prevalent in poor countries, especially AIDS. In the, in the interim, drugs that can retard the progression of AIDS must be treated as global public goods and made available to people who need them most. Brazil has already shown the way by making generic AIDS drugs widely available. Finally, the fifth component of our strategy to end poverty must be to dramatically increase the resources dedicated to the task. I'm not just talking about financial resources, but political, diplomatic, and peacekeeping resources as well. Although the prevention and resolution of conflict is at the heart of the UN's reason for being, the international community has frequently either acted at cross purposes or taken no action at all. The most tragic example of the last decade was Rwanda in 1994, when the United, Nation, when the United States and the UN Security Council refused to act, Hutu militia slaughtered 800,000 Tutsi. And we now know that 5,000 well-trained UN troops could have prevented the genocide. Development cooperation recognizes that trade and investment by themselves are insufficient to move the poorest nations out of poverty. Back in the 1970s, each of the industrialized democracies of the OECD subscribed to the goal of providing 0.7% of their GMP for development assistance. Only Denmark has adhered to that commitment. By contrast, the United States has been dead last in the OECD class, devoting barely 0.1% of our GNP to foreign aid. This is an utter disgrace. And it is the more regrettable when surveys indicate that 81% of Americans view poverty and hunger is one of the most important problems in the world. No other world issue is viewed as that important by so many Americans. We can and must do better. We can transform such views into a citizen's movement to end poverty. I urge each and every one of you to find a role for yourselves and what must become the great cause of this century, ending poverty. In my childhood, during the McCarthy era, I learned about how injustice can go unchecked when good people 
remained silent. In Chile during Pinochet's repression, Chileans disappeared and their co-workers did not even notice, let alone speak out. It has always struck me as strange that a simple act of decency in the face of injustice can be viewed eventually, if not at the time, as an act of heroism. Martin Luther King, Jr. wrote about a generation having to repent not only for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress, he observed, never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It takes an active and deliberate effort on the part of each of us to bring about the better world that all of us desire. How can you make a contribution? How can you help to end poverty? First, take an interest in the world. Learn about issues beyond our borders, about issues affecting the lives of poor communities. Connect with people from all over, all, from all over the world. This generation has an unprecedented opportunity to connect with distant communities through travel or virtually through the Internet. Be aware of America's world, role in the world, how the policies of this country affect global poverty. Be aware of how little foreign aid the United States provides to poor countries. Be aware of how agricultural subsidies shut out exports from those countries. Take a position on pharmaceutical companies bringing lawsuits against poor countries that violate patents of drugs that are used to treat HIV AIDS. Understand the issues and America's role in them. The, the position you have on these issues may vary, but use your power as a citizen to promote the cause of ending poverty. Write, call, or email your elected officials. The students here will go on to have important careers and hold influential positions. In the situations you face and the decisions you make, consider how you can contribute to ending poverty, whether at a bank, a hospital, a university, or in government. You never need to fold before the dictates of narrow interests. Be a voice for inclusion, for equity, and social justice. Use your influence thoughtfully and ethically. Take a risk for what you know to be decent and right. Help build a movement of people in this country who stand in solidarity with poor people everywhere. Convey to politicians and policymakers around the world that poverty must be ended. Help them summon the political will that is so sorely needed. Engage in public campaigns, including online campaigns. One recent example of a successful campaign was Jubilee 2000. It advocated debt relief for the poorest countries. Another was a campaign for the ban on landmines. Support organizations to end poverty. Organizations like CARE depend on private donations to sustain their work. It is relatively easy to give to universities, museums, and hospitals, because it's like giving to yourself and to your children. 
it takes a more conscious effort to support the struggle of poor communities in distant places. Make that effort. Dedicate a specific portion of your giving toward ending poverty and start now. Volunteer for programs abroad like the Peace Corps and cross-cultural solutions, or build houses here at home for Habitat for Humanity, or serve on the board of community organization to help the homeless. Get involved, but be forewarned. I started as a volunteer member of the CARE Board of Directors, and look at me now. <laughs> Last but not least, work in, the non in a nonprofit organization like CARE or Save the Children or Oxfam. Tackle issues of poverty directly. Inject new energy and ideas into our missions. I'm reminded of the Woodrow Wilson graduate who in 1993 managed a program in Niger. It then included 55 savings associations of rural women. Today, there are more than 2,000 associations with the participation of 55,000 women. I am now older, wiser, and admittedly grayer than I was when I arrived at the Woodrow Wilson School 37 years ago, but I am not the least jaded. I recall some years ago hearing that the ancient Jewish mystics believe that there are a vast number of shells scattered throughout the secular world. Beneath each of these shells is a spark of the sacred and the divine. Every time a human being performs a sacred deed, the shell is lifted, the spark is released, and the divine light shines into our lives and into the world. What continues to energize and inspire me, to keep me hopeful and idealistic, is the beaming face of a once impoverished woman who has learned to read and write and to run her own business. The pride of a man who has helped bring water into his community and who has doubled the production of his crops. The joy of a child who is, who is healthy, who attends school, and who looks forward to a future better than her parents passed. Their pride and joy are in turn reflected in the faces of care staff working with those communities. Let me close by telling you about a care project where I saw shells being lifted. In poor villages in Bangladesh, young women who have been abandoned by their husbands or separated from them by death, divorce, or divorce, are cast out, relegated to lives as domestic servants, prostitutes, or beggars. In recent years, some 75,000 such women have enlisted in CARE's rural maintenance project, working in crews to repair dirt feeder roads. Over their years of service, they earn a wage of $1 a day. 25 cents of which is put aside as forced savings so that they can eventually start small economic activities of their own. In, the final, in their final year in the project, the women, though almost all illiterate, attend classes in accounting and other business skills so that they are ready to go upon graduation. 
I have met with work crews and graduates on visits to Bangladesh. At the outset of the program, most of the women lack the self-respect even to look a visitor in the eye. But they soon take pride in performing a community service and earning an income. Thousands of graduates have gone on to start successful economic activities and gained respect within their communities. Several dozen have been elected to the governing, governing councils in their districts. At the end of one of my visits, I asked a crew leader whether she had any request of me, and she responded without hesitation. Give other Bangladeshi women the opportunity care has given us. This woman was earning $1 a day, but she had savings set aside. She felt empowered by her experience and was confident that she could pull herself out of poverty. Poverty, poverty can be ended in the 21st century. I urge you to play a role in its demise. It is unconscionable to let extreme poverty persist in a world that possesses the capability and resources to end it. The challenge is enormous. We should not underestimate it. But we, but we must not resign ourselves to the view that the poor will always be with us. We must have the vision to imagine a dramatically different future and the determination to change the course of history. To paraphrase Eleanor Roosevelt, who was focused on the cause of peace at the time, it is not enough to talk about ending poverty. You must believe in it. And it is not enough to believe in ending poverty. You must work for it. The future of the world is in your hands. Peter has agreed to answer some questions, and I think I'd let you handle them yourself. Yes, sir. Meaning that's why you don't need slaves anymore. 
energy that will make carbon. And my commitment is to create energy a billion species per person that's three times as much as an average American right now. Then, and only then, every person can have education, food, water, and the like. It takes energy to create all these products. So I urge you, add energy as a goal. It has nothing to do with the, you know, physical wealth, people that empower them to create food and energy. Well, thank you for that uh, contribution. As I said, each one of us needs to contribute with our comparative advantage, and clearly that's yours. Thank you. Yes, sir. I don't have a quick or easy answer to your question. And of course, this is, it is a huge, huge problem. And it isn't, you know, you talked about uh, Indians migrating to this country. Uh, I was recently in Nepal and visiting the remote area of Bajra. And there, the Nepalese are migrating for six months of the year to India looking for employment. It goes on sort of at every level all around the world. I, I take some, some hope uh, from some of the initial signals uh, between uh, George W. Bush and Vicente Fox in the sense of trying to create a more humane uh, regime for migration between our two countries. And I, I think you're absolutely right. As we sort of, as the world evolves over the coming decades, there will need the issues of migration will need to be looked at much more in terms of the world in its entirety. With the and then it will make sense, I think, to as part of the regime that governs migration uh, to be sure that there are there's a very humane aspect uh, to it. Um, I would ideally like to see us move more into a freer movement of people all around the world. And I think it's likely, likely to happen. The question really is, 
the degree to which that will be viewed as a threat and the degree to which it could be part of a solution in terms of, of economic development. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. It's a coincidence that you're speaking on policy because New Year's Eve, I made a resolution to dedicate my life to abolishing poverty. I have written to Bradley what he said during his primary campaign, that he was going to abolish poverty in our lifetime. And I thought, that's great. I wrote to him. He sent me a form letter saying, congratulations. Nothing specific. It is clear that if we are going to to end poverty, there, there, what is what is critically lacking is really the political will to do it. And um, I mean, you can just imagine if uh, the president, if the government of the United States had the same commitment to ending poverty that we had to winning the Cold War what we could achieve. And uh, I believe that you know, if there is going to be that kind of commitment, then you know, there are going to have to be millions of individuals, hundreds of thousands of organizations that will in one way or another need to dedicate ourselves to that task. Um, and uh, you know, there are lots of people who who've uh, already dedicated a fair amount of their their lives to doing so, but I think we're just beginning. Yes.
The, you may well be right. Uh, I think it will take a, a variety of tactics, if you will, um, within, within care, uh, rightly or wrongly. We speak from our experience in the field and can speak with a good deal of passion from that experience. We tend not to be sort of hard edge organizations, which is what you're encouraging here, and have had a, um, have had a fair amount, uh, made a fair amount of progress as a result of talking with people, including corporate executives, about changing the practices of their corporations. I mean, some of these, we're very much engaged in discussions along these lines right now, for example, with executives at Talisman Energy, uh, which is a major Canadian firm investing in oil in Sudan. Uh, and without getting sort of too deeply into that at this point, I mean, the, the major issue here is here's this company putting a large investment into Sudan, and the revenues that they're paying, the fees that they're paying, are being used in very large measure by the Sudanese government to fuel the war. And um, we are arguing with uh, executives in, in Talisman and have been in discussion with them for some time that this is at best short-sighted on their part, that they are doing real harm in the world. And they ultimately are likely to put their investment in jeopardy. Now, the sort of other side of it is to have, in fact, the threat from human rights groups and others who are dedicated to hard-edge advocacy to uh, set to engage in campaigns to sell talisman uh, stocks, which has happened, which has lowered the price for the company and, and increased the pain. So we can work together. Yes? Um, but yes, I will repeat the question. The question was from uh, Dick Ullman, Dick Ullman how, uh, how we make our decisions within CARE and how we decide between a longer-term development project and a short-term relief project, for example. Um, first, at an ongoing operational level, uh, CARE works in some 65 countries around the world. And the decisions are made, and we are a very decentralized organization. Overwhelmingly, the staff in those countries are from the countries themselves. And they make most of the operational uh, decisions on the ground. Uh, at headquarters, in, in our board of directors, and in the larger CARE International Organization, of which we are just one of 10 members here in the US, decisions are made at a sort of at a kind of higher policy level. We have made a real effort to put increasing uh, amounts of our resources into uh, to, into poverty reduction and now to ending poverty in, in the communities in which we're working. I would say you know, 
ten to fifteen years ago eighty percent of our resources went into emergencies and and today it's just the other way around it's about eighty percent go into this longer term work but when the emergency occurs in india with the earthquake or in el salvador with the earthquake we feel we must respond and in fact as we think about it you know as i said in my talk it is in the very nature of poor people that they live on the razor's edge of crises so and that they are the most most susceptible to disasters natural and manmade so we do need to be able to respond when that happens but in in responding we make every effort as quickly as possible to support people to move on and get onto their feet and begin to to make progress toward longer term development one one final question yes okay yes yes the the question was my reaction to the bush administration's proposal to fund or to take a special interest in faith based organizations first i want to learn more about it i guess i would be disappointed if that meant an emphasis on relieving suffering as opposed to long getting at longer term underlying causes poverty the other thing i that i have said to some people is that you know care is a nonsectarian organization we're a secular organization and yet as i travel across this country and talk with some of the 400,000 individuals who give to care each year i find that their giving is more often than not faith based they basically believe in the dignity of the of human beings of each and every human being and the indivisibility of humanity they uh so care in that sense is a faith-based organization even though we're not a religious organization so we'll have to see uh, who qualifies and who does not qualify here <laughs> before asking you to let me express appreciation on behalf of all of us for peter's lecture and his remarks please do join us at a reception which will be in frist multipurpose room and i'm sure you'll see many people going down there so follow the crowd and peter will be there to respond to questions on a on a more individual basis thank you again peter very much okay good good we'll see the great karen and family good thank you